Tommy. Right now, I've got to attend an interstellar peace conference. But until I return, I leave you with the touch. I'll be back soon to transform your day into an adventure. Hey everyone ever, and welcome to 20th Century Pop, the show where we try to understand the present while living in the past. My name is Tim Blevins. My co-host Bob Canning is not here, but that is not without uh, trying. Uh, Currently, he's suffering, I guess, from an acute uh, case of synthitis brought on by an overexposure to uh, mid-80s keyboard no look all right up, up right up front here here here's the frustrating thing or a frustrating thing um about how we record this uh this, this podcast bob, bob and i we're, we're on separate coasts as i mentioned before he's mentioned before um he's on the west i'm on the other so we exist you know in different time zones and different zip codes and different interpretations of what constitutes a uh, uh, reality. And, and fine, that's that's fine. No need to get into that because we make it work. As a show, we make it work. Look, we normally make recording this rinky-dink, do-it-ourselves, uh, kit-bashed of a podcast, you know, by ourselves, uh, work. We make it work. I've just said that so many times, you know, but, but it's because we do it without a professional studio. We do it without a producer mastering anything beyond, you know, our own personal grasp of this technology. We do this very much out of our respective homes with free or, you know, at least affordable software. And I don't know, any of the training that comes with just doing something 81 times. So that's great. You know, and I like that for the most part. Uh, for the most part, I like that. But but what it means, what, what that means is when we record an episode, uh, we record it via the internet. We use an online uh, recording platform called Cast. We uh, each hook in via our computers and, and, and microphones, and we record the streaming conversation as an MP3 to later edit, you know, via actually an older than what you might have uh, version of GarageBand. So are you following? Is this interesting? Hello? Have, have, I, have I said hello? There. Hello. That's, that's kinder. <clears throat> that's more real. Uh, hello, and welcome to half of the show you were expecting. Uh, that would have been smoother if Bob were here. And why isn't he here? Well, because of all the words I was just saying. We usually record the episode Monday or, or Tuesday night. Then we edit it Wednesday or Thursday morning, you know, to, to have it up, um, well, to have it up on Thursday. So we used to be a week ahead, but currently we are, um, we're a week of. So this past Tuesday, just just two days ago, we were all set up to record, you know, our notes and uh, everything about today's topic, which, you know, is a topic I am thrilled for. And uh, so we log on, we go online around 1030 my time, probably 730 his, uh, that's PM is, is when we do it. And we get there on, on, on the internet, and we start talking, just catching up as we normally do. And that's fine. We're on a schedule, so we're even trying to cut that short. You know, we don't have as much time as we normally do. So I hit recording. I hit the record button on the recording app. Uh, We're both talking and listening intently via the headphones to what the other one is saying. And um, that, listening through the headphones, that's where the problem starts. Sporadically, as we're talking, I can't hear Bob. You know, he'll be talking. Then it goes tinny like a, a sound effects in the matrix or something. And then after a few seconds, he comes back in and, and, and I, I just, I can't hear him completely. I can't hear all of his thoughts and he's having the same trouble back and forth. We're just, we're not hearing each other, not in a symbolic way, just in a technological way. It's something technical, possibly the recording platform, but most likely it's the Comcast internet connection that I pay for. Um, we pay for my partner and I, a uh, wife, but also partner, you know, she's the Springer. I'm the RC. And, um, that's because she was a cool with a, with a green, uh, Mohawk. But, but I, I think the problem is the internet connection that Bob and I can't hear each other. 
Still, in the interest of this podcast, we push forward. You know, we try, we, we restart the recording app, we log out and we log back on and we do the base level amount of uh, what technical effort that one does with, with, with a base level of understanding. And we keep pushing forward, assuming that, that we can fix it in post. But, you know, pre-post, we're getting very little. We're cutting out. We're losing each other's uh, sound, feed, whatever you want to call it. And, and, and finally, after 25 minutes of desperate desperation, we, we switch our recording platforms. We, we, we try a different route, an older route, something we've used in the past that wasn't as effective, but we used to use it. And uh, we try that. And still, the same effing problem. The same effing problem. And, you know, this happens, thankfully, not too often, but it's the reality of any endeavor, really. Um, in this case, the very real reality of a very low budget, you know, in-house sort of uh, novice level production. We're talking about the practical recording part. And we've been pretty fortunate that with 81 episodes, you know, we've maybe lost a full episode what, twice? You know, maybe there's three. You know, I think there was a drunken uh, Terminator 2 episode that never made it on the air. I think there was one about maybe posters we had up in, in, in the dorm when we were living in college. And, and actually, ironically, with today's topic that I still haven't gotten to, um, I, I lost an episode with a friend and, and prior guest on the show, Mike Rohr, that he and I had done about the second season of the animated uh, Transformers cartoon from, from the 80s, from 1985. Uh, but for the most part, we've always gotten through the show. You know, sometimes with extra editing or, or lengthier post-production process, but we've gotten it to work. So this, this setback, you know, not the biggest deal, I guess, in the world, you know, not worth cursing, shouting, and wondering why about, but uh, because, well, because the show is really about um, a discussion, you know, because the show is really a conversation, a, a, a two-way realization, uh, you know, for that to happen, I really need Bob, you know, there on, 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 on the mic, on the microphone, on, on, on the mic, mic, microphone. There's two words for one thing. I need him on the other side of the country. You know, uh, he, he's a single, what measured year in age ahead of me and an extensive, um, alphabetized music collection above me. And, and really, he's just someone who knows how to listen, knows how to talk, and doesn't have the ego to have to hear himself that I have. And just, I would have liked to have discussed today's episode with him because, well, because I like discussing anything with him, you know? And... That's all. That's what these past seven or eight minutes have been. Me rambling towards, I guess, the realization that, you know, he'll be back. We'll be back, you know, uh, together. Next week, Bob and I on the show. Yeah. So that, there, that, that's, that's out there. That's off my chest. That's, um, that's not normally this podcast. That's an odd opener, uh, for, for this podcast, that's that's not this. But you know what is this podcast? You know what this is about? The show, 20th, uh, 20th Century Pop. Um, it's about our experiences as wandered through the 1980s and often 90s. But today, specifically the 1980s, uh, 1986 by way of 1987, um, that's today's topic. So are you ready for today's topic? Because we're this far in. And it might be good to start. Uh, yeah. So tonight, this evening, if you're listening to this show, the day it hopefully goes up, um, I am thrilled to be going uh, to a special uh, screening, screening, an event at the big screen movie theater, if you will. If you're a longtime listener of the show, you, you might remember that last year, around this time, I ventured out to see a re-release of my favorite movie of all Frickin' time, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and, and I got to see it on the big screen, and it meant a lot. 
I love uh, seeing things on the big screen, even if I've seen them hundreds of times before, and especially if it's been a long time since I last saw them that way, you know. And 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 to 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 illustrate that 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 very sentence that I, I just said tonight, this evening, Thursday at seven p.m., I'm headed to what I imagine will be a packed theater of early to mid, I don't know, forty year olds, um, just to sit beneath a giant screen and watch all eighty six cinematic minutes of 1986's The Transformers, the movie. The um, animated film that, to spoil it all for you, uh, killed off my childhood hero, Optimus Prime, uh, introduced my favorite Transformers character, Galvatron, uh, gave us an Orson Welles performance that was basically Orson Welles, and in general, uh, a movie that massively impacted and reshaped my childhood. It was an effing experience, and, and, and today... On the show, what, I, what I'm going to talk about is, is part of that experience. Not the whole of the animated film, um, but rather a, a pretty important part of, of, of the animated film. Today, I'm going to be going uh, song by song through my cassette copy, actually via my later purchased compact disc edition, but I have them both, um, of the Scotty Brothers released Weird Al featuring recording of the original motion picture soundtrack to Transformers, the movie. Uh, this soundtrack was released on August 8th, 1986, uh, the same day as the film. It was released on record and cassette. Um, copy of the original LP is probably pretty hard to find. I believe there was also like a 45 of the, of the lead off track uh, of, of, of the touch, the, the main song from the score, but I had the cassette of the soundtrack. And later I had the CD, which was released uh, like six years later on March 2nd, 1992. And there's been a couple re-releases since with different covers. I think there was a 20th anniversary edition with some bonus um, instrumental tracks. There's a BotCon exclusive of the entire score. But what we'll be talking about today is the cassette that I first got in 1987. And uh, to understand how I got it, we might as well finally uh, jump right into the opening song on the album. It's the unofficial anthem to all things Transformers, and it was a secret bonus Mark Wahlberg recording on the 11 years later Boogie Nights soundtrack. Um, yeah, I'm talking about Stan Bush's The Touch. So Stan Bush, at the time, he was an 80s hard rock hair metal artist, you know, like kind of like White Snake. He started in the late 70s with a band called Boulder, went on to be the front man of an 80s band called uh, Barrage, which is also Decepticon's name. And they would shout, yeah, in a lot of their songs. Uh, to see Stan Bush photos of the time and to hear him um, in recordings of the time is to, is to sort of know where music was at in the mid, uh, 1980s, at least where a certain type of music was at actually where two types of music were in, uh, in conflict. The, you see the Transformers, the movie album is often referred to as, um, a heavy metal, uh, travesty. But I think there is actually a, a duality going on in the form of the ongoing musical struggle that I think besat the 1980s, uh, heavy metal versus, uh, versus hair metal. And I think heavy metal came first, I, th I, I think, as, as, a, as a form of music. You know, heavy metal is loud. It's guitar-driven, Satan-spewing, fatalistically dark-fueled music that um, as a kid, as a child in the 80s, I, I was terrified of. And not because of the media's dumb, uh, satanic panic, although the album artwork always struck some sort of a chord with me with that. No, I, I had friends who listened to heavy metal, and I would hear it, and it's not the kind of music that I would listen to. It's not the type of uh, pop music I'm, I'm drawn to, a pop mood that I like. But at that time, and what I can appreciate about, uh, appreciate about it now, not then so much, but now, was that heavy metal music uh, was a way of exploring some deep, bleak outlooks 
You know, these were songs about suffering. These were songs about fatalism. These were songs that could fuel a soundtrack of all of my 1980s nuclear apocalypse, uh, apocalyptic nightmares. Heavy metal, just to lay it out blatantly, was a Holocaust nightmare. And I guess throwing that word in didn't do me any favors. But when you look at the album art, when you hear the Christian rights self-righteousness against it, and you just feel what these songs feel like, I mean, what I felt anyways, it was that pit of the stomach horror towards our nuclear arsenals and the nightmare that would follow if these missiles were launched. Heavy metal, as a kid, to me, was not enjoyable because... It stoked my darkest fears. But um, hair metal, hair metal, I, I could listen to some of that. Uh, hair metal, let's see, you, know, you got your Poisons, your Bon Jovi, your Motley Crue, maybe Eddie Money, uh, Warrant, uh, Stan Bush, I guess. You know, they dressed the part of heavy metal because they had long, glorious hair and leathery outfits, you know, ripped mesh shirts, all, all, all the aspects that made heavy metal rockers appealing to photograph. I mean, maybe not all of them, but, but, you know, hair metal had this look, but they infused it with a pop sensibility that I could follow, you know, with melodies that I could follow and topics I could approach. And hair metal seemed a bit, Devoid, you know, of the nuclear nightmare that made heavy metal what it was. Again, at 10, I was scared of Motley Crue. I, I, I didn't know what to make of some of these other hair metal bands and performers, but I could listen to a lot of it and eventually get into some of it, warrant, I guess. Um, and, and I, I guess my entry point into that, to hair metal, uh, the, the, the first of these musicians, these hard rock 80s hairstyles that I wanted to have in my cassette deck was Stan Bush, specifically Stan Bush's song, The Touch. I'd loved that fucking song, and I really only heard it in the Transformers movie. I mean, I remember calling the radio station once at age 10, asking them to play it to no success. Um, I remember when I got the film on videotape, uh, the video cassette of the movie in Christmas of 1986, scrolling through the closing credits to write down the names, authors, and producers of each track, specifically The Touch. And when I would you know, go to the mall on a family shopping spree for school fashions or whatever. I would make my normal so sojourns, is that a word, uh, into KB Toys and into Walden Books. But because of having seen Transformers the movie a couple times by now and pausing those closing credits and having a reason to go, I would now venture into the aisles of the Strawberries record store. And I would scan the movie soundtrack section for what I thought was maybe a non-existent copy of the proper Transformers soundtrack. And, you know, when that search proved empty-handed each time I would go in, I would then make my way to the actual recording artists, flipping through the long box cassettes of uh, Kate Bush, only to come up empty-handed in the next uh, section. This song, The Touch, was my first holy grail. This this thing I so wanted to find, that that, that I had to find, but... Since I never saw it, um, and, and since no one I knew had it, no, you know, I, no, no one knew where to get it, all I could do was seek it out. And it, and this is an experience I had throughout childhood, often with music, you know, this idea of tracking down things, having to go out and find things that you just wanted but didn't have access to. Things like the weird science soundtrack, you know, Howard the Duck. I guess later it was Paul Westerberg bootlegs. But this song, The Touch, was the first feeling I ever had of that. A feeling that stretched over a year until October 20th, 1987, my 11th birthday, when my mom and dad handed me one of my gifts, which was a blue cassette carrying case with a little handle on it, uh, something to stash my ever-growing soundtrack collection into. And as I opened it up, because there was a rattle inside when they handed it to me. When I, when I opened it up, I found a wrapped rectangle already jammed in one of the slots. You know, the paper made it a little bulkier, so I had to, to work it out to get it out of the slot. And I honestly didn't know what it was outside of it being a, a cassette. But, you know, I pulled it out, I opened it up, and, 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 and I couldn't believe what I was staring at. They had found it. 
They had found the Transformers, the movie, original motion picture soundtrack. My mom had specially ordered it, I guess, most likely from Strawberries. It was an official, actual cassette soundtrack. You know, this thing, this thing I had been looking for and had never seen, it was there in my hands. You know, I didn't even know everything that was on it. But when I flipped it over, I saw that it had the touch. The touch, it was the first song on it. I had, I had obtained my holy grail. And on a school day, you know, it was, it, I had to get going to school. You know, we had to get ready. So I stuck the tape in a tape player, blared that first sweet Stan Bush hit all the way through, you know, in this amazing audio moment of disbelief. And, uh, you know, then I had to hit stop, you know, and, and, and leave and go to school. And, and, the, but that feeling of hearing the touch. That, that, that feeling of, of when it was playing, that raising sensation that only music can hit you with. I've, you know, I've felt that since, you know, the extended isolation of just me and the song. You know, I felt that with Left of the Dial, with Under Pressure, you know, plenty of other tracks. But putting this particular tape in and hitting play was the first time I felt that uh, rejuvenation or exploration, or whatever that sensation is of finding and now having music. But I had to turn the tape off and go to school, and fuck, I couldn't wait to get home that day and listen just to the rest of that thing, you know, which, once the bus dropped me off at 3.30, I finally did. And I think the tape was probably still in the tape deck. Maybe I'd taken it out, but when I hit play, I listened to the touch again, and after that, it led me to this second song, Instruments of Destruction by NRG. And this song, this song was heavy metal. NRG was was a band uh, possibly formed out of Taunton, Massachusetts. At least that's where the singer is from. Um, they've, they've broken up and partially reformed a couple times. Once as a band called Damned Cheetah. Uh, once as NRG2. I guess they've even performed alongside the Goo Goo Dolls, maybe sometime in the past. They've opened for them. And, and I'll tell you, NRG, uh, just in listening to it, they are, uh, definitely not something I would have ever listened to, um, without the context of, of, of this actual movie. Uh, the song, Instruments of Destruction, uh, plays when the Decepticons, uh, attack an Autobot shuttle early in the movie. And it's to this tune that we, as an audience, are exposed to just how violent the story is going to be. During the course of this song, Megatron and his Decepticons decimate the likes of longtime Autobot heroes Prowl, Ratchet, Brawn, and Ironside. It's a massacre, one that could have received an R rating. And um, it's set to the screeching guitars and angry voices of a song that includes the lyrical content of, and I'm, I'm quoting the song here, What's it really matter when nothing really counts? Grave eternal darkness when drained of every ounce. And it goes on, claiming existence rips away and to ashes we transform. This is very fatalistic for your robot toy movie. The song scared me as a kid, but, but I always listened to it. And there's this sense of, of, of commotion, you know, it's, it's, it's the guitars and the screaming, but there's also that, that fatalistic dread. <clears throat> and I need to acknowledge that because it's theme that, the, that idea of this song, that's heavy metal. That's a mindset. You know, the, the, the pointless, the pointlessness of existence, the violent specter of an evil end. And that this song, that's what this song is about. So what was it doing in a kid's film and on a kid's cassette? I mean, who made this choice? Because we're going to see in a, in a couple of the tracks for, for a tape collection that was uh, triumphant John Williams music scores and the Smurfs. There's something to this tape that when I listened to it in my Walkman penetrated beyond my years, you know, something new. And this song does it a little bit and, and we'll see it a little more when I talk about one of the later songs. But first, uh, the next track, song three, it was an instrumental. 
Um, and it's entitled The Death of Optimus Prime. So, you know, no secret there. It's um, the song by Vince DiCola, the composer of the film's score. And he's had a pretty heavy presence in 1980s soundtracks. He did, well, he did the Transformers. Uh, he did Rocky IV. <clears throat> he did Staying Alive. And apparently he was one of the first musicians to utilize computer sequencing for, for keyboard playback. Uh, he also released an album called Falling Off a Clef, um, which I think is a, a music pun. But uh, for now, <clears throat> for right now, let's acknowledge that he was a great synthesizer player. And that's a key sound of the 80s, you know, striking keyboard keys. And he was fucking striking those keys. Now, I don't think I buy movie soundtracks anymore. I'm not sure they even make them, but... Um, when I was collecting them, there there was this phenomena, or or I guess more just the reality of 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 how soundtracks work. Of of when you get a soundtrack, when you would buy a movie soundtrack, that it would be like a, a playlist that mixed between uh, pop songs and parts of the score, you know, music cues from the film, not the entire score, like the Temple of Doom or Superman, but these were just key selections that they thought conveyed the film's core feelings. Now, prior to the Transformers soundtrack, I, I really remember this from uh, the Back to the Future soundtrack, which was probably the first pop music cassette I ever owned. You know, it kicks off with Huey Lewis in the news, then it goes into something called Time Bomb Town, I think, if I'm remembering right. And, and then that masterful Alan Silvestri theme. And I only mention this because back when I used to listen to cassettes all the way through, you know, from beginning to end, uh, that type of place placement on the cassette helped give me the respect I have uh, for motion picture scores. Hearing a selection out of context from the film at the general length of a pop single, I, I mean, I, you know, I love film music. You know, I hummed all the parts of the Star Wars soundtrack, you know, without even having it. But the type of placement, especially when it's a film you know so well, where all the dialogue hits, you know, where the song fits in the film's runtime, when, when, when you get that song, that track isolated, out of context and among these other radio-ready tunes, you know, that led me to think more about the music behind the scene, you know, more about the music and what it was doing. I, I wasn't watching Temple of Doom or Back to the Future with the future film scholar intensity that I was studying this animated Transformers movie. So to have this you know, this song, this track, this this instrumental, both in the film, but also as isolated music, gave me another way to grasp the overall composition of filmmaking. And I mean, it's not Citizen Kane, but he's in it. Still, you know, we're, we're talking about the soundtrack. And, and, you know, for me, the main focus at the time of having the soundtrack was hearing those sweet, sweet Stan Bush tracks. You know, and, and that drive, that need, that love of the poppier aspects of the soundtracks kind of segues nicely into um, talking about the fourth song and possibly best song on this album, Dare. And uh, this is this is another Stan Bush song uh, co-written by the just mentioned Vince DiCola. Um, and it was recently used pretty much in its entirety in an episode of the Alison Brie show Glow on Netflix. Um. And the, t you know, and, and I would say like where the touch, the song, the touch was effectively the theme of the movie. And again, the reason I wanted this cassette tape in the, in, 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 in the, in the first place, you know, sort of a victory lap of inspiration dare, the song dare is actually a little more accessible and also kind of a little more eighties, 1980s. You know, when you think about it, it's, it's used well in the movie. It's used twice. It incorporates some of Instacola's film themes into it, or, or it might be the other way around. I'm not, I'm not sure which existed first. Um, but it's a song, as a song, at the core of it, it's about trying, T-R-Y-I-N-G. Not necessarily the doing that, you know, the touch it was about, you know, ensured you were inspired to do something. Dare, dare is about trying. And I think that's important, you know, as a distinction. I, I think as a kid... I idolized valiant heroes like, um, what, like Optimus Prime. So actually, specifically, Optimus Prime. My biggest inspiration as a child was a truck that was also a robot. And in this film, in the Transformers movie, when he arrives on Earth to basically, as Cup says, turn the tide, 
of the entire Decepticon army, it's set to the already mentioned anthem, The Touch, which, which musically gives you something to aspire to be, be like Optimus Prime. But to follow a storyline as closely as I did in this film, I, I, I need, you know, I would have needed a character to, to relate to, not idolize, but somehow to, to drape myself upon. And in this film, uh, that character was, was Hot Rod, the brash, younger Autobot teen. And we're not dissecting the film's plot on this episode, but, but I mention that anyways, because in a way, Dare, the song Dare, is his theme. It plays shortly after we first meet him. Um, it serves as the backing track as he drives like an anarchist with his human companion, Daniel. And then when Hot Rod spots the arrival of the Decepticon fleet, it, 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 it plays as the most astounding synthesizer solo backing track you've ever heard paired with a moment of true peril. This song sets Hot Rod up as the character to follow and does so while still trying to instill some 80s cheesiness in the form of, you can win if you dare, which is fine as a lyric. But but what's better is the fact that you haven't won yet. You're not riding the eye of the storm, as mentioned in The Touch. You're, you're entering the storm. And it could go either way, as demonstrated by that, uh, again, that so 80s it hurts my skinny tie, a keyboard solo in the middle of the song. So as a kid... At 11 or 12, struggling to just about enter, what, the teen years? Uh, The encroaching days in middle school? Whatever it was, having a backing track like Dare wasn't trying to force me into moving forward, but it also wasn't asking me to bury my cautiousness, you know, like some 80s rah-rah enthusiasm often does. Dare was that song I could play before I tried. It was encouraging, but it wasn't quite the act of trying. And that's where I was at. And since I only know uh, two Stan Bush songs, you know, they seemed like companion pieces, uh, Dare was where I was at, and The Touch was what I could aspire to, to be. Also, you know, The Touch was the big hit, so by liking Dare, I wasn't following the mainstream. Up next on, on, on this cassette, as we near the end of what would be side one, is Nothing is Going to Stand in Our Way. Um, a hair anthem by Spectre General, the kids' appropriate code name for the actual Canadian band Kick Axe, AXE. Um, as a band, they were probably a decade old when this movie came out. You know, they've toured with White Snake, The Scorpions, Quiet Riot, and this, this is a pretty great, uh, hair metal song. Again, not something I would normally have listened to, but it starts out pretty awesome. Uh, it's apparently a cover of an original song by John Farnham, uh, Farnham, Farnham, John Farnham. You know, I wrote it, but I never said it out loud. He's an Australian soft rock star. Uh, he's performed with Olivia Newton-John and Celine Dion. Um, and his version, the original version of this very song was on the soundtrack to a movie called Savage Streets starring Linda Blair that came out two years before the Transformers movie. And the song, again, it's, it's an anthem you know, sort of a we're not going to take it kind of song. And it plays during a scene on Quintessa when Hot Rod is fighting to save Cup from a giant mechanical squid. And, and kind of like Dare, this is a song for youth, for young people. So, of course, I translated it and placed it upon, you know, this idea of Hot Rod. You know, this was another one of his themes, a loud rock song about taking on the world, ignoring your parents. And yet somehow, you know, played quite often to my 12-year-old ears. This song about taking on the world and no one's going to stop you playing for the 12-year-old who lived safely with his parents in tiny Lebanon, Connecticut. You know, it, it just, it, it kind of begs the question that I guess I haven't asked yet. Who is this soundtrack made for? You know, these are heavy metal hard rock, grimy high school hair bands. And the tape, this tape that they're all on, it's, it's, it's a kid's soundtrack. It's, it's the soundtrack to Transformers the movie, a child's toy line, a, a, a child's cartoon, again, aimed at the eight to 12 year old set. 
this wasn't an album for teens. It wasn't an album for established metal metal fans. And, and there wasn't any Transformers nostalgia yet. They were just two years in. Anyone who would have rushed out to buy this compilation would have only been 10 at the time. Or their parents. It's weird. It's, it's fucking weird that the way this film was put together, that they could present this as a seemingly marketable cassette for sale, a, a playlist, a, a compilation of 10 tracks, you know, that only kids would think to seek out. Was this misdirected? Or did somebody know what they were doing? By putting this cassette out there for sale, were there seeds being planted by someone in the know? Was this an attempt by someone with a musical pedigree to get heavy metal, hair metal, and this type of music into the ears of future listeners? I'm not suggesting a capitalistic conspiracy meant to make a legion of up-and-coming kick-axe fanatics. All I'm saying was someone was playing the role of that older sibling, you know, that, 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 that person who turns you on to Aerosmith, you know, or Elvis Costello, or in this case, a bunch of Canadian heavy metal acts. Because if that's the case, I was the target audience for that. Um, my brother wasn't huge into heavy metal. He had some hair bands, but, but he wasn't into a lot of this. And truthfully, for what's on the soundtrack, I didn't fall for it really either because, again, I, I just I wasn't into this music as music. This soundtrack was an event, both in the fact that it was Transformers-related and that it influenced my later music-seeking uh, mentality. But if Transformers wasn't labeled across this cassette, I would have never heard any of these songs. So does that make it a capitalistic grab for kids' allowances? I, I still don't, I don't think so, no. Although, if we do flip the tape to side two here, uh, we kind of get, we're not going to take it again, with a rocking drum beat that kicks off a heavy metal guitar screech version of the Transformers theme. Fuck, man. Fuck, that seems a little commercial, right? I mean, it's performed by Lion, a rock band best, if I can use that, uh, known for having a track called Love is a Lie, featured in Friday the 13th, the final chapter. I don't know it. Uh, but this song, which is all I know them for, this song, with a familiar chorus from the TV series, sets out to tell you the plot of the movie. It sort of gives an abbreviated take on the 86 minutes with credits plotline of the film. And at least from a transcription of these lyrics, the plot is pretty dire. It makes it out to be a light against dark, heroes against villains kind of clash. It name checks Unicron, you know, making this the shout at the devil of the Hasbro set. This song is epic heavy metal for... 10-year-olds? And I say for 10-year-olds uh, because it's sincere. This is a sincere take on the Transformers mythos. And in 1986, unless you were 10, you didn't care about this shit yet. It works when set to animation. It works as giving a darker edge to the film, and it works when filtered through the earbuds, you know, that I'm wearing of nostalgia because I grew up with it. But, and I'm asking without an answer here, given this entire uh, soundtrack, all 10 songs that we've, that, you know, some of which we've already talked about and the few that I'll, I'll still get to, who the fuck is this for? And what did the band think? What did Lion think? You know, how did negotiations go for this? Did they play this one live? This is a perplexing pivot point for the whole album because it's on the second side, meaning that if you got to it, you've listened to the first half. 
You have to flip the tape over to get to this track, so you must somehow be invested by now, even though side two, historically, is the weaker side of all cassettes. I mean, you start strong, and then you you know, you know burn off a few B-sides, which, honestly, from my vantage point, this soundtrack only has one B-side, and we'll get to it soon, but, but still, I'm perplexed. I'm perplexed by this song, and I'm perplexed that this song has three verses. I will admit, and I am one of the biggest Transformers movie fans I know, um, I do not get this song, but it's on the soundtrack. It's in the fucking title, and it's on the soundtrack, but I don't get it. I get the next one. You know, I totally get the next song, because the next song, the second song in side two, with that song, you know, we're, we're back in the movie again. It's, um, it's an instrumental piece called uh, Escape, once again by Vince DiCola. Um, and it's the music cues from when the Autobots are evacuating Autobot City, which is co- coming under fire by Galvatron's Armada. And, and, and to listen to this track, uh, there's some menace to it, you know? Vince DiCola does great work in sort of mimicking how your adrenaline flows. He builds up pace. He makes you feel like you're increasing in speed and, and, and intensity. And he did the Rocky IV soundtrack, which my brother had. And you can really hear the Rocky IV soundtrack in this piece. I mean, it's hard to talk about it, you know, without playing it. You know, but the, this is a sweet composition. And I'm glad that it's on this soundtrack. Also, in talking to Bob, who did listen to this album in its entirety in an attempt to record this episode, I believe this was his favorite track. Which is great, because up next is my least favorite track, um, Hunger by Kick-Axe, by way of Spectre General. And this song is bad uh, to me, but only because it's not the kind of music I listen to. This song is totally not something I would ever listen to. The, the, the opening guitar is just not what I want to hear. And I mean, it's used well in the movie, but I was just never keen on this song, which makes sense anywhere else. But in a conversation about this soundtrack, why don't I like it? I mean, I think I've already expressed how much of the soundtrack is music I would never listen to, but given the context of the film, it's in support of, you know, I dig it. Why is this the one that falls flat, that fails to captivate? You know, I would listen to this album on cassette, and it's not easy to just skip songs on a cassette, but I would usually fast forward this one. And that's strange because if we are to add any credence to the theory I was, I was mentioning before. You know, if this album is meant as an introduction to, to, to the heavy metal, this song, it's a great lesson. The lyrics are not great, but, you know, it cer- certainly touches on power addiction, uh, sex addiction, you know, not admirable qualities, and not something you maybe hand off to a 10-year-old, but perfectly common themes in the musical uh, musical styling of, of, of heavy metal. And maybe that's why this one doesn't work, you know? I mean, all these songs appear in the movie. So for me, all these songs have the imagery of those scenes. I get to think about the movie when I hear these songs. Uh, that's great. I'll do that. It's why we hang posters and, and People Magazine articles in our 90s dorm rooms, and when I first got this tape, you know, I'm sure I listened to this song straight through because I listened to the whole tape straight through. But like all pop culture I partake in, all pop culture I, I, I return to, my, my favorite pieces that I keep revisiting, you know, I'll, I'll find other ways to experience them. You know, that way they stay fresh and, and repeatable based greatly on what they are, but also on the memories that they, that they stoke, you know, the nostalgia and, 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 I find it kind of interesting to try to experience these things in different ways. And with the soundtrack, you know, listening to it as, as a kid, it eventually became something beyond the movie. Uh, something I listened to and was into, and nine of these 10 songs carried some sort of lingering impact. 
I mean, the Transformers theme had the toy influence, but, you know, that NRG song at the beginning, you know, it, it scared me with its fatal promises. I can listen to that still and get it for that. You know, Nothing's Gonna Stand in Our Way is, again, it's a, a teen in revolt, a sort of pre-bastards of young, you know, so so sure. But, but hunger, this thirst for the unsavory at the age I was at, it doesn't ring any bells to my pre and early teens. It doesn't play as well as the rest. It's the one song in this album that can't maintain the effect, unless that effect is an illusion, um, but the effect of being part of this Transformers the movie. And, and if it can't maintain the illusion, it can't transcend my designated grouping of heavy metal. And since, outside of this album, I don't listen to heavy metal... I ignore it. I'm sorry, Kickaxe. Uh, they love you in Mentoba. But we follow it up. We follow it up with the penultimate song, and we've got the third and final instrumental piece of the film score here, uh, Autobot Decepticon Battle. And this song should be on your soundtrack. This is a great piece, and while it plays like a climax, it's actually from an early part of the film. This piece conveys all the peril, all the dire circumstances, and all the hopelessness that this movie sets up for our heroes. It's an amazing piece of music that captures the magnitude of the Decepticon attack on Autobot City, and the fact that the Autobots are so overwhelmed from this attack. This is what, uh, prior to the soundtrack, I thought soundtracks were. You know, a way to relive moments, sensations, chills from these music cues, you know, from the original movie. And this song delivers. This song fucking delivers it 100%. It echoes the song there. It gets a cool little part when Blaster is uh, radioing for reinforcements. All those sounds, those musical pieces. This is your soundtrack. And I love it. It's great. It's too bad that it fades out at the end because after getting this cassette, I had to go another what, 13, maybe 14 years before getting my hands on a copy of the complete score? And, you know, just to veer off of topic for, for a moment, I can thank friend and previous guest of the show, Jason Smith, uh, for obtaining me a copy of Till All Are One, the double-disc uh, complete Vince DiCola score uh, that was available at one of the earliest BotCon Transformer conventions. Uh, thank you, Jason. He got that for me in the late 90s or early 2000s. But prior to having that, the score to the Transformers movie was limited to just the three tracks on this compact disc and cassette. And more than anything else on this tape, hearing that part at the end of this fade out, it just made me want to seek the movie out even more. Which gets us to the final song, and, and sort of a surprise, and that track 10, or song 10, um, is Dare to be Stupid by Weird Al Yankovic. And well, this song is one of his greatest accomplishments off the 1985 album of the same name, um, which I had on cassette. And, you know, at the time that I got the Transformers movie soundtrack, Weird Al was my favorite musician. He was also the only artist I would have had known of off this album at the time. So the inclusion of this song should be awesome, right? Weird Al on the fucking Transformers soundtrack? Yet, most of the time, when I listen to this tape, I'd stop it after the Autobot Decepticon battle. You know, I was almost all the way through the tape, and yet I would halt it uh, before this last track. Why? Why would I do this? The, the song is in the movie. I mean, it's basically the Junkions theme from the Planet of Junk. Uh, it plays when Rekgar and the rest of them attack the Autobots, and it also plays after they make peace with each other and everybody's dancing and whatever. So, so why not listen to it, Tim? Why not get to it at the end of the cassette and and listen to it? Well, because as a kid, I didn't consider this an official uh, Transformers song. You know, it, it was too hard for me to consider it part of, of the soundtrack. Because prior to getting the soundtrack, prior to even knowing this movie existed, I already knew this song. 
I was listening to this song, you know, watching its video, loving its artist, but as a song, Dare to be Stupid was from somewhere else. And that broke the experience for me a little. You know, the symphonic audio and visual experience of the Transformers movie being a new thing. Um, I was excited that Weird Al was going to have a song in the movie. I remember the commercials for the movie when it was coming to theaters. I remember his name being mentioned in the ads as, you know, songs by Weird Al and someone named Stan Bush. Um, I didn't know Stan Bush, but I freaking knew Weird Al. So I was excited to hear he'd be in the film. And I guess I thought it was going to be a new song, you know, something written specifically for the movie. I didn't know it was going to be a pre-existing song, which apparently neither neither did Weird Al. Um, you know, the soundtrack, again, was put together by Scotty Brothers Record and Tapes. Weird Al was also signed to Scotty Brothers Records and Tapes. So, you know, they had access to his music. And, you know, knowing he had some popularity with the, you know, with kids, they put one of his tracks on the soundtrack. And apparently he didn't even know until after it was released. He didn't have any say in it. Um, not that there were any hard feelings. I mean, like 22 years later, he played the role of Retgar in a, you know, in another episode of a, of a newer version of the Transformers, you know, so I don't think there were bad feelings and I love the song and I think it's used well in the movie. So I don't think it was just a commercial grab. So it should be awesome to go out on this song. And yet what was my problem with it? Well, I think at the heart of it. At that age, in that position, in that sort of experience of experiencing something new, which was the soundtrack. I mean, Transformers weren't new to me. They were ingrained in my head, but they are also what brought me to the soundtrack. And they brought me to the movie. And, you know, both of those things, they were new. You know, the movie, it was on the big screen. It was more intense. You know, it had new characters that we followed. And, I had this soundtrack of that movie, you know, unlike anything I had ever heard before. So, you know, when I got that cassette, it was all entombed in something new, this rectangle with a poster on it, minus the background and and its track listing crowded on its back lip and an insert that basically told you who performed and produced each of these songs. You know, all of that as a single unit, a presentation, a cassette holder of music. Fuck it. This was an album. And the Transformers movie soundtrack was my experience to what an album could be. You know, what, what you searched for, what you found, brand new in a sense. So that this caboose of a track, Dare to be Stupid, a great track, I repeat, a great track, but still one I already had on a totally separate cassette that actually bared its name, it sullied the integrity of a found item. This soundtrack was supposed to be my step up into the big leagues of music, I guess. Bands, you know, sounds, electric guitars, and and just really just subject matter that I as a listener had yet to explore through my beloved parodies and all those covers by the California Raisins. And this Weird Al track didn't fit for me, you know, there. Which... You know, it doesn't matter because the, its presence on the cassette doesn't devalue this thing, doesn't devalue this cassette. And I mean that very particular cassette, case and all, because that copy or store-bought copy of the Transformers movie soundtrack on cassette is the initiation of something in my pop culture history. Now, it's hard to fully separate it for the animated film. So I think on a whole, they both did did a similar thing. But since we're talking about the album, this actual cassette and the path that led to it, um, yeah, I I think we need to acknowledge the rarity of it, you know, at the time. You know, all my friends copied my copy of it. No one else had it. They had copies of mine. This tape set an admiration for music into being. Well, not necessarily an admiration of music that that came from other places, but it instilled this idea of collecting music, you know, an idea that still needed to percolate for a few years. And it actually wasn't really until I got a CD player in 1991 that collecting music really exploded for me. But this idea of what a compilation was in many ways, a template 
for all the future uh, mixtapes I'd re-record for people. This single conglomeration of chosen music, again, mostly not music I would ever listen to, kicked off my love of music curating, which is why I mentioned the mixtape. Transformers the movie as a soundtrack didn't really belong on the shelf of a 12-year-old named Tim which is why it was awesome that it was on the shelf of a 12-year-old named Tim. Because music collecting, music fandom, music snobbery, unfortunately, is sometimes about the wrong thing. You know, the thing that conflicts with the norms, the outside expectation. You know, we should listen to what isn't the normal thing to listen to. And that can be guided by voices. That can be Archers of Loaf. That can be Kate Bush. Or, for who I was at such a young age, that could be NRG. That could be Spectre General. I mean, that could be Stan Bush, yeah, but but his songs are awesome. And they were to an 11 or 12-year-old, which is why I still listen to those. But all the other tracks, all the heavy metal that came noisily from my, my tiny, you know, little cassette player. It wasn't for me. It wasn't who I was. But all those other tracks, all the heavy metal that came noisily from my tiny cassette player, that wasn't for me. That wasn't who I was. So thank Primus, the Transformers creator, not the double bass band, that I still listened to it because I was then able to listen to heavy metal music on my own terms. I could experience the music that didn't play anywhere in my house. And while I've already echoed that it wasn't for me, its presence in something that I loved as much as I did meant that to get through what I loved, the soundtrack, I had to at least sit with it. And when we sit with things like music, like all art, really, we find a connection, you know, and this connection, be it temporary due to the age, you know, or, or, or long-term, that's what propels me. You know, music propels me. It moves me. It gets me out of bed. And I can listen to the opening notes of Ziggy Stardust all day and get the same fucking chills. But how great to have a wider selection of tracks and a wider selection of experiences, different emotions, different feelings, different thoughts come from different melodies and lyrics and, 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 and just, you know, just from fucking NRG scaring me into submission with the promise of becoming dust. You know, to listen to something I couldn't handle at 12, you know, so thank God I heard it at 12. Because after that, I didn't seek out more heavy metal. I couldn't stand it. But eventually I did seek out Tomorrow Wendy by Concrete Blonde and Bone Machine by Tom Waits and, you know, maybe some of the darker Afghan wig tracks. I learned to reach out of my comfort zone with melodies and musical topics and themes. And I got that. I learned that. I did that with this 10-song cassette tape wisely gifted to me by two parents who knew something about music. And, you know, thanks to the middle child, a lot about the Transformers. So that was that. The Transformers, the movie soundtrack. You can find it out there. It's streaming. It's probably available in stores. I think it was recently released or re-released on record. I'll be hearing it tonight at a screening of the Transformers movie. Woohoo! But uh, thanks for listening to me reminisce there. And if you're curious about what else has impacted both myself and Bob, you know, uh, why not head over to 20popcast.com? It's the official website of this podcast. Uh, the newest episode is always up for listening there, as well as links to all of our uh, past episodes. You can also subscribe to the show there. You know, never miss an episode. There are links right on the website to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and some other Android apps. Um, also, if you do subscribe, or if you do listen, and you like what you hear, uh, the biggest way you can help us out is by leaving a little review. You know, uh, stars are nice, words are great. Uh, 
Stars are nice. Words are great. Most apps give you a little section where you can post a quick review, and I know it takes a little time, but it is appreciated. Um, it helps us know what people think uh, about the show, as well as aiding us and getting uh, you know a little more noticed, I guess, out there. Uh, but if you want to support the show other ways, how else can you support the show? Well, you can just share it with friends. You know, you can uh, like it on Facebook. You can follow it on Twitter and Instagram, both at uh, 20popcast. You can also follow me separately on at subcultist, both on Instagram and, and, and Twitter. And you can follow my co-host Bob on Twitter at rhcanning, as well as read his music blog at superultramegamix.wordpress.com. That's superultramegamix.wordpress.com. And you can see his comic strip, My Exaggerated Life, online at exaggeratedlife.wordpress.com. Or, even better, you can hear Bob and me simultaneously next week, hopefully, when we get all these technical atrocities um, figured out. Something did stand in our way this week. Dare I say, we did not have the touch um, to record our show together. You see where I'm going. You know, write, write your own hunger pun here. I'm, I'm not going to uh, do that. I mean, it's not really a pun, just a hunger-related joke. Something with the word hunger in it, maybe, from your vantage point. You know, I hunger for, for, for better content. Ooh, I hate that word content eat it eat the content like the sugar cube said well that that was a menu but i bet content uh was on it i'm done beyond good beyond evil beyond your wetness imagination Transformers, the movie. A new evil threatens the galaxy in the hottest summer adventure ever. Be part of it. Enter our ultimate Transformer sweepstakes. Grand prize is the stereo cassette player plus movie souvenirs. Over a hundred winners get movie soundtracks or the Transformers hit single The Touch. Get this bumper sticker just for entering. Send a stamp self-addressed envelope to Transformers Contest, Post Office Box 29943, Parma, Ohio, 44129. Transformers, the movie. Opens everywhere August 8th, rated PG.